0: 34 We'll start off in Exodus chapter 32. Last week we learned several things that the scripture has to teach us about God, and we found that God is eternal existed before this world ever came into being, and he is the creator of this world. He is the reason that this world exists. And we learned a little bit about the nature of this God, that he is a God who is good. We saw that from the, his creation of the world, remember? all very good. We learned about this God that He is powerful. He reigns over this world. Everything that happens in this world is the result of God's will. He is the one who directs it all. And the third thing we saw about God was that He was just. He is just. He operates his world. He rules over it in a way that is right. He is not content to let evil and injustice reign. God sets the record straight. And we finished last time by noticing that there, then, is some tension between this God and this world. And we see that tension In a passage like Exodus chapter 34, Moses asks to see God's glory. And God says, You cannot look upon me, but I will proclaim my glory to you. And Moses hears the proclamation of God's glory. And the Lord, Lord, in verse 6, passes before Moses and proclaims the Lord, Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God... A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Let's see, you need some help finding that out. I mean, that was a little more challenging to find. Let's see Yeah, let's yeah, find Exodus 34 here. Yeah. Exodus is the second book of your Bible let 34 we're going yeah, working here on verse six. Let's start verse six, the Lord passed by and passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. here is a God who is very good. He is a God who is compassionate, he forgives sins, he is merciful. There we see that God is good. And yet we also have these statements about God in verse 7, that God will by no means clear the guilty. He holds guilty sinners accountable. He is just. He will not allow us to go on in our sin forever without his wrath falling upon us. He will by no means clear the guilty. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. So in this passage we see that God is good and we see that he is just. And how is it that such a God... Can relate to us in our world today. God created a perfect world in the beginning in which Adam and Eve lived. Here are two human beings who have not sinned. And God desires to be good to them. And He can be good to them because they actually deserve it. They are good people. God, in His justice, can also be good. In other words, in the beginning, heaven and earth were one. God in heaven, man on earth, existing in perfect harmony. God, surveying the world that he has created, pronounces it all very good. God pours out upon Adam and Eve his rich blessing. God creates them in his image, and then he says, I bless you. A God who is just and a God who is good, pouring out his blessing upon Adam and Eve. Man and God, you remember in the garden, walk in perfect stride. There is nothing that separates man from God at that point. God's goodness is poured out upon them, and His justice is actively involved in that as well. But then sin enters in. Adam and he choose to sin against God to eat the fruit. And now suddenly there is great distance and tension between God and the world. How can a good God... Show justice to a world full of sin. How can a just God pour out any blessing or goodness upon sinners? And this is the genius of what Satan did in the garden. He introduced into this world a toxin that is so poisonous. It's so poisoned to this world that God cannot continue to exist in harmony with this world. Unless he is willing to abdicate and step down from his position as God. Satan, through Adam, introduced sin into this world, and sin has destroyed the relationship between God and the world. And now, if God wishes to retain his relationship with this fallen world, he's going to have to either give up his goodness or his justice. He cannot be a good God and a just God and still enter into fellowship with this world, with the people who live in this world. He cannot be both good and just as the sovereign ruler of this world. Something will have to give. Either God will have to abandon this world and let it go its own way, or God will have to abandon himself. He'll have to abandon his goodness and stick only to justice, punishing sinners for their sins. Or he will have to abandon his justice and stick only with his goodness and pour out blessing upon sinners who do not deserve it. He cannot betray his own justice, though even to be good. Sin deserves God's wrath and curse and to show sinners anything else other than God's wrath and curse would be to undo God. It would be to take him apart into separate parts of goodness and justice, to discard one and to keep only one aspect of God's character. In other words, God, in relationship to this world, there is great tension. And the sin that Adam and Eve committed has now nearly almost forced God to step down from his position as God. This sin, if God were the blessed sinners, if he were to be good to them, If he were to show them justice, in either case, it would unravel God. He would come apart almost, as it were, at the seams, seams, if we can say it that way. He can no longer be God if he is to stand in relationship to this world. But if God could reclaim this world in a great act of unspeakable power. If God could reconcile this universe to himself, so that once again it was all very good. If God could drive out evil, so that only righteousness and justice reigned in this earth. If God could do these things, then God would show himself, not only as a good and a righteous and a just God, he would show that he possessed in himself Supreme goodness, supreme righteousness, and supreme power. You can think about it this way. It's one thing for a hen to create an egg, to lay an egg. But if that egg is broken, even a hen cannot put it back together. But if you found a hen who could both create the egg and restore it after it had been broken, that hen would be the hen of all hens. That hen would possess supreme henness. That hen would show that all the other hens must come and bow down before her and say of her that she is the hen who stands out above all of the other hens. In other words, if God could reclaim this world, if he could restore the goodness, if he could reward evil with justice, if he could manifest his sovereign power in this world, then God would show himself to be supremely good, supremely powerful, and supremely just. He would show himself to be God over all things. If he could erase this tension, if he could bridge this gap, if he could reconcile the world to himself, God would be displaying his glory as the only God of heaven and earth. And this is exactly what God is doing in the world today. This is what everything in the world is moving towards. It is God displaying Himself to be God alone. And you can turn to Romans chapter 11, verse 36. This was God's plan from before the earth was even formed. It was to put on display... Before all of the watching angelic world, all of the angels and demons, God's plan was to put on display before them a supreme act in the creation and government governance of this universe. God's plan was to display to all of them that He was God alone. And so the first point there in your outline is that God's ultimate purpose in creation is His own glory. Let's look at Romans chapter 11, verse 36. Romans 11, verse 36. God says through Paul's pen, For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. The point again, in case you missed the blank, is that God's ultimate purpose... In creation is his own glory. Think about it this way. God is in a category all by himself. He's in the category of having been not created. No one has created God. And everything else that exists in this world is in a different category. It is in the category of created things. God God is not created. All the rest of it is created. And this verse draws connecting points between those two categories, between God and everything that exists outside of God. And it gives us three lines of connection between God and this world. Look with me at the beginning of the verse. For from him, from God, and through him, through God, and to him, Back to God are all things. Three things that connect God to this world. The first is what we looked at last week. For from Him are all things. All things come from God. We saw this this past week. God is eternal. He is the creator of all things. Nothing exists that God did not create The second thing this verse tells us is that all things are through Him. And this means at least two things for us. The first thing is it means that all things persist. They continue to exist and endure because of God. God created all things. They exist because He caused them to begin to exist. But God is the one who sustains all things. And their continued existence is because of his will as well. The second thing that this means is that God is the executive of all the earth. We speak of a chief executive officer over a company. That man is the one to whom falls the responsibility of carrying out the purposes for which the organization exists. That man is the one who makes all things happen, he guides the company to achieve the purposes for which it exists. God is the chief executive officer of this entire world. He is the one who guides all things towards their intended goal. He is the one, Isaiah 45, verses 6 and 7. He is the one, I am the Lord, there is no other. I am the one who causes prosperity. I am the one who creates calamity. I, the Lord, am the one who does all things, God says. And so this verse tells us That God creates disasters just as surely as he causes prosperity. God creates catastrophes. He sends plagues. Can anyone doubt that it was God who sent the ten plagues upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, to deliver his people in Exodus chapter 20? Can anyone doubt that the coronavirus that we have struggled with for the last few years is just as equally from the hand of God? And what's significant here is that the same set of things, the all things in Romans 11:36, 36, that are from him, what is there that God did not create? Well, nothing. It's all from him. And that same set of things, Paul tells us, is what occurs and transpires through him. God reigns over every molecule of this universe just as surely as he created every molecule of this universe. Nothing exists apart from God and nothing continues to exist apart from God. And the third thing that this verse tells us about God's relationship to all things, not only are all things from Him, not only are all things through Him, but all things are to Him or for Him. This verse gives us God's ultimate purpose for which he directs everything in this universe. What is God doing? What is his purpose in directing everything in this universe? What is he directing it towards? What is his purpose and his goal? All that God does, he does for him, for himself. In all that God does, he acts primarily in his own interest. He acts for his own sake. He acts for his own glory we're tempted to consider that God's actions for himself are selfish. And yet they are not, because God is God. And God, being God, cannot act in the interests of any others. He alone is worthy to be beneficiary of all things. And his goal in working all of these things out is for himself. You can think of what kind of a world we would exist in if God merely did everything that he did for our sake. We create a world like that that we live in every day. We insist that people live and move for my sake. Everything ought to be for me. What kind of a world is that in which we live? It is a world of strife and chaos. It is a world of sin. God says, no, 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 human beings, no human being is the center of the universe. I exist as the center of the universe. I created it all, and I direct it all, and I do it all for myself. And so Paul concludes, verse 36, Romans 11, to him be the glory forever and ever. If the universe is of God and by God and for God, what a glorious world this is. It is a world where God's own priorities and goals reign. It is a world where a benevolent God reigns, a world where He is at the center. And this is the world we anticipate in the new heavens and the new earth, where God is in the midst of all things. Revelation 22, verse 3. Now we have been talking, we have said that God works all things, and this is our first point there on the handout, God's ultimate purpose in creation is His own glory. What do we mean by God's glory? What is God's glory? Simply put, God's glory is His splendor and His radiant beauty. You can think of the sun. The sun exists, but from that sun emanates and radiates out great glory and light and splendor. So much so that we cannot even look upon the sun with unaided vision. And we say that God is holy. I want to distinguish between God's glory and God's holiness now. We say that God is holy. What do we mean when we say that God is holy? The word holy simply means that God is in a category all by himself. In other words, God is good, and we can manifest some measure of goodness as well. But God stands in a category all by himself in his display of goodness. His display of goodness is unparalleled and in that he is holy. God is just. We may strive for some measure of justice upon this earth, but in working out his own justice upon this earth, God is in a category all by himself. His justice is perfect and in that, He is holy. There's no one more loving than God. There is no one more just than God. He is in these categories all by himself. And we could could liken this, we could think about perhaps the running of a race, the running of a marathon. God runs marathons in goodness and mercy and justice that we can't even qualify for. And he wins the races every time he enters. In fact, he crosses the finish line in victory before the gun even goes off. God is holy in all that he is. But God does not wish to possess this holiness merely in the dark. His plan is not merely that he should be these things and that no one should know about them. God intends to make his holiness visible And when His holiness is made visible, that is His glory. God displays His holiness, and we call that display of His holiness His glory. God wishes to put His holiness on display for all the world to see. He wishes that the stadiums of the track upon which He runs would be full. He wishes that the spectators would be spellbound as He parades. His holiness before them around the track. He wants all the posters to have pictures of him on them. He wants to show his holiness so that every other would-be God is run out of the stadium in shame because he falls, because those false gods fall so far short. He wants every fan to leave the stadium in awe of him. He wants them to glorify him. And so God acts in such a way as to make that radiance and beauty of his holiness visible for human beings to look upon and to see. He actually enters the marathons and he runs the races before the spectators of this world. He wants every creature in the universe to watch and to know that he is glorious, to love him for it, to rejoice that such a God is the God of this universe. Now we speak of giving glory to God as though we have something that we can hand over to Him that He hasn't had up to this point until we have contributed to Him. And yet Romans 11.35 says this, that no man has ever given a gift to God that he might be repaid. There's nothing that we can render to God that He does not already possess. Glorifying God is not giving Him something... Glorifying God instead is seeking to know Him, to recognize Him for who He is. It is coming to love Him for what He says about Himself. It is appreciating God as He reveals Himself to be. It is, in a word, it is rejoicing that this God is God of the universe. And it is living in response to all that we know Him to be. God puts His glory on display so that human beings would be dazzled by it and would delight in it. And when we pass by God with a shrug or a yawn, we do not appreciate Him as He truly is. He is waiting. He is majestic. He is holy. And to behold God is to stand with our mouths agape and our faces in the dust. It is to take him to be as weighty as he says he is in the Bible, and to love and to rejoice in him for who he says he is. This is what man was made to do. The Westminster Confession of Faith, a statement of biblical truth, is put together by about 500 ministers, pastors in the uh, 1600s. Begin that statement by stating this, that man's chief end, what he was created for, was to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We were made for this, and it's why we are irresistibly drawn to displays of glory and majesty upon this earth. Mankind was created to behold glory and to respond to it in awe. Think of a full football stadium. Why did the people show up? It's because the athletes on that field can do something that no one else can And we want to sit in awe of them. We want to behold them as they run the ball up and down the field and be dazzled by it. Human beings were created to partake of glory. No one shows up to watch me play football. There's not anything particularly glorious and dazzling about this. But as the ability of the athletes increases, so does the fullness of the stands. The better the athlete the more people will turn up to watch his glory on display as he runs up and down that field. We are thirsty as human beings for glory. We are on an endless quest for glory. We go to football stadiums. We visit the beach to take in the grandeur of the sea. We watch YouTube videos about the greatest this and the best that. We listen to the majesty of symphony orchestras. We're attracted to the pomp and majesty of a coronation ceremony. The coronation of King George is set to be the most televised event in recent history. Why is it that so many people want to see that? It is because we are thirsty as human beings for glory. That will be a scene of majesty and glory that has not been parallel for some time in this world. Human beings are constantly searching for glory, but only God's glory will satisfy our souls. And this means that if we can discern where God's glory is primarily on display, where He is showing that glory, if we can discern where the stadium is, and when the marathon is to take place, so that we may go and sit in the stands, if we can discern when it is, where it is that God displays His glory, then we can devote ourselves to that we can turn up and watch God parade His glory about the track. And that will be for the satisfaction of our soul's desire. So where is the glory of God on display today? Where does God show Himself to be so majestic and powerful and good and loving and kind and gracious? One place where God shows this is in nature. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens display the glory of God. And yet nature is an imperfect display of God's glory because it is tainted by our human sin. The glory of God visible in nature is imperfectly displayed. Athletes get old. Majestic buildings crumble. Rose gardens and all of their beauty are overrun with thorns. Human vigor and strength decays with disease. And queens and kings in all of their pomp and glory die. And they must be replaced. These things are all part of the natural world, but our ability to perceive the glory of God in them is greatly diminished. Nature is not the primary world in which God's glory is on display today. So where is it? Where is the greatest display of God's glory today? What is this big marathon that he is running before the gaze of all the spectators of the universe? And we come to an answer to that question. I'm sorry. If we can come to an answer to that question, we will know where we ought to fasten our gaze. We will know where we ought to devote our attention and our time. We will know what it is that God is doing in this universe. And we can come to an answer to the question of where God is putting all of his glory on display if... We can somehow locate the finish line of the race. Where is God intending to drive this world to? What is the finish line of the marathon that he is running? If we could find that finish line, we could trace our way back down the track and find not only where we are in God's story, of his display, of his glory, but we could also... um, See the course of the race and how it is all developing. So what is the finish line? When God's race, His endeavour, His quest, His purpose to display His glory, when is that all complete? When does it all come to its finish line? Well, let's turn to Revelation chapter 21 and we'll see this together this morning. Most of the way through, what we want to look at this morning... See if, can uh, see if there are any questions. But so let's turn to Revelation 21, the second to the last chapter of the scripture. Where is the finish line? God is directing all things toward. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. and God himself will be with them as they go on. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. Here is the finish line. It is done. And what is this finish line? God directs all of human history for his own glory. Everything in this universe is moving towards the glory of God. And God says finally, the goal has been achieved. The purpose has taken place. What just happened when God crossed the finish line? It was this. A city, New Jerusalem, prepared as a bride for her husband, descending out of heaven from God. And God now, that new Jerusalem, descending to earth, a new earth, and God dwelling in the midst of his people. Here we find the end of all things. God's been moving every event in the history of this world towards this day. And what happened? What happens on this day? How is God glorifying himself in this world? It all comes to a conclusion with the Bride of Christ, descending out of heaven. The way that God is glorifying Himself today in this world is by the construction of the Bride of Christ. It is by reconciling all things to Himself, so that once again He may dwell in the midst of mankind. God Himself, verse 3, the dwelling place of God is once again with man. Sin introduced tension, distance between God and this world. It separated Adam and Eve from their creator. But here we find a people, a bride, united to Christ, the Son of God. He, They will be his people, and he will be their God, and he will dwell in their midst. It is a restoration of everything that went wrong in the Garden of Eden. The distance and the tension that was introduced between God and this world, is now gone. And they dwell in harmony again. God has united all things to himself again. And how has he done this? How does it, how is it that God intends to take this universe, between which and him there is such great tension and distance, how is it that God intends to reunite himself with this universe? It is by this. It is by uniting this universe to His Son in marriage. And the book of Ephesians helps us understand this in in detail. And we'll look at Ephesians chapter 1. This will be our last passage this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 and verse 9. God has made known to us the mystery of his will. And his will accords with his purpose. According to his purpose. And that purpose is what he has set forth in Christ. God has set forth on a plan to accomplish his purpose. And the accomplishing of that purpose is in Christ. And what is that plan? It's a plan for the fullness of time. It's a plan that will not be complete until God crosses the finish line on that day that we just read about in Revelation 21. And what is God's plan? His plan is to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. God and this world stand at a distance from one another at present. But God's plan for the fullness of time is that on that day, God and this world might be one again. They might come together into a unity. God might dwell amongst his people once again. And how is God going to achieve that? How is he going to overcome the distance? How is he going to unite all things together and unite them once again to himself? It is this. It is by uniting all things, verse 10, in Christ. And word to unite all things in Christ simply means to bring all things into unity under Christ's headship. To make him the head over all things. God's intention is to subsume all things under Christ, to set Him over all things as their one head. God intends to reunite His creation to Himself by placing Christ in between God and this world, being the mediator to join the two together again. One day Jesus Christ will return to this earth to reign over it, and God will in that day place all things under the headship of Christ, And God in this world will be one by Christ Jesus. That is how God intends to glorify himself on that final day. But God is at work today to do that. Today he is uniting elements of this creation to himself by Christ. Today God is rescuing individual men and women. He is uniting them to the body of Christ... And in that way, he is reuniting this world to himself. This is what Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23 says, that the church is the body of Christ. Think of that. God in heaven, sinners on earth, and yet God takes from those sinners individuals and he places them into Christ. He unites them to Christ so that once again they are reconciled to him. And in uniting them to Christ, he unites them into one body. He unites them to one another. In other words, how is God displaying his glory today? God is displaying his glory by the construction of the body of Christ. The church. The church is where God's glory is on display today. In a way that is not true of any other sphere of this universe. He unites men and women to Christ today, erasing the tension and creating for Christ a body, and by the construction of this body, this bride, God is glorifying Himself. His work of reconciliation, creating this body and bride for His Son, the construction of the body of Christ is the chief means by which He is glorifying Himself today. This is God's marathon. He is running this race before the entire universe. He is preparing a bride for his son. And on that day, when it is complete, the bride descends from heaven, and God and man dwell in perfect harmony by Christ. This is what God is doing in the world today. And so in summation, at the bottom of your notes there on the back page, God is reconciling his rebelling creation by uniting them to Christ under his headship, to his own glory. God is reconciling his rebelling creation. God is reconciling. He is uniting together again. He is reconciling. He is overcoming that tension. He is reconciling his rebelling creation by uniting them together again into a body for Christ by uniting them to Christ under Christ's headship to his own glory. God is reconciling his rebelling creation by uniting them to Christ under his headship to his own glory. And this means two things I think for us today as we go first of all these ideas are deep they are broad. They are perhaps difficult to comprehend. But we have seen from the scripture that this is what God is doing today. This is not something that I have made up. This is what God himself says. His finish line, his goal is, this is the mystery of his will. His plan for the fullness of the times to unite all things in Christ. And he is at work to do that today. He is constructing the body of Christ today. And so it is critical that we come to understand this world from this perspective. That we come to value the church as so very valuable to God. This is not a small thing. The construction, the building, the planting of churches is not a small thing. Your presence as a believer united together with other believers in the body of Christ is not a small thing. God does not intend His people to live isolated lives. He intends that they gather together into a visible body of Christ because it is in it is when the, vis- when the body of Christ becomes visible, when people see local churches, that is where the glory of God is on display. And so we must understand these things from God's perspective. So perhaps an appropriate response this morning would be to review what we've seen this morning. Look at some of these passages again. Try to understand what God is saying to us here. Ask God to give you insight into these things. Ask God to inflame your heart with a love for the body of Christ. And the second thing that we can do, I think, in response to this is to pray that the Lord will bring to life a church here in Brisbane for His own glory. It is when the body of Christ shows up as visible in a community that God's glory is on display at that point in the church before the watching world. So we will... uh, together and ask God to work these things into our hearts, and then uh, perhaps see if there's anything that can make clearer. Um, Barbara and Kim intend to come on Wednesday for Bible study. I uh, plan to take them through this as well, and I'd love to, I've recorded it this morning. I'd like to pass it along really to anybody who um, wants to be part of Bible study, just to have this foundation in place. God is work for the sake of Christ to construct the body of Christ for his own glory. So let's pray together and it see okay. Lord, thank you for revealing to you the mystery of your will. There are so many people in this world today who have no idea what you are doing. They have no idea what is transpiring in this world. Their priorities are misaligned. Lord, you have been gracious enough to make known to us the mystery of your will, your plan to reconcile this world to yourself by Christ. And Lord, it is a privilege beyond all description to be a part of that, to be a part of local churches to work to see believers gathered together, united together in Christ. Lord, we ask for this church plant that you would preserve us from uniting around anything other than Christ. We pray, Lord, that the small differences that exist between us, that these small differences would not impede gathering together around the Savior. Lord, give us understanding of these things. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to grasp them. We pray that you would give each one of us the insight and the ability to grasp the weight and gravity of this. I pray, Lord, that you would give us joy in what you are doing here to gather together saints into the body of Christ. We ask this in his name. Anything that can make more clear? You boys follow all of that? Yeah? Understanding? Let's go through the uh, yeah, let's go through and make sure that we've got the, the blanks here. Uh, let me just get a blank sheet here. So on the first page, the front, the first point. God's ultimate purpose in creation is his own glory. Yep, good. And then uh, on the back page, God is glorifying himself by constructing a body for his son. Or you can say creating a bride for his son, constructing a body for his son. And Ephesians 5 connects the two of those. Christ is the head of the body in Ephesians 5 and the picture there that's given of that is marriage where the husband is the head of the wife so the body and the bride, the head and the husband uh, they go together so when we see God at work in Revelation 21 to create the bride of Christ that is his work to create the body of Christ And that body, Paul tells us, is one one body, many members. So God unites many members together. He unites them to Christ. And in that union, God has overcome the tension and distance that has existed in this world between him and foreign human beings. And then the summation, God is reconciling his rebelling creation by... Uniting them to Christ under his headship or as his bride, you can say it either way, to his own glory. This is how God is glorifying himself. Any questions? Anything that was not clear that I can make more clear? Okay. Well, we will end on that note here this morning. And uh, in the future, uh, we will...